Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest joining me via Zoom from her home near Sacramento, California, is my new friend, Sherry Cassell. Welcome to the podcast, Sherry. Thank you. I'm pretty excited to be here. Sherry spells her name S-H-E-R-R-Y, and Cassell is spelled C-A-S-S-E-L. Um, Sherry's about my age. Um, we're both 61. I guess we are the same age. And although I'm much older because I'm an old 61 and you just barely turned 61. Just um, a pup. You're just a pup. But we're going to talk about, um, Sherry's going to share some of her journey. And I'll first start with this first subject about being a survivor of sexual abuse that happened when, started when she was about two and continued with different people until after her mission so that's kind of a trigger warning, listeners. If you don't want to listen to a podcast about sexual abuse, um, this may not be your podcast, but Sherry's going to share some of that, not in the spirit of helping others that are currently um, victims of sexual abuse or are coming out of that that may need Sherry's perspective on how to find hope and healing. She's going to talk about her mission. She's going to talk about um, just the complexities of her growing up life, mentally ill, mentally ill Mother, I believe you're going to talk about and just really difficult growing up um, circumstances um, as an active Latter-day Saint. Sherry is still an active Latter-day Saint. She's had times where she perhaps doesn't participate as much as others, but she is an active Latter-day Saint. Um, she served a mission in Cleveland, Ohio. She's the mother of three children. Each of those children were born out of wedlock um, to from different men or to di- from different men, I guess is the right vocabulary. Three three different men. So some would say, well, that's a bit unusual for a Latter-day Saint mom, but life is unusual listeners and people have different stories and perhaps understanding Sherry's background and the environment she grew up in gives us grace to not judge, but to love and support Sherry. But in sharing that, I hope it's helpful for some of you that have had less traditional experiences as Latter-day Saints or want to help people like Sherry feel welcome in our congregations um, she's going to talk about these three kids. Two of three are active in the church and married in the temple. I think you have about four grandkids. So yes. sometimes I meet someone like Sherry, and I think of the generational work she's changed from where she grew up and the environment she had and the work that she's done. And she's not perfect, and I'm not perfect. And now her kids are obviously having better experience than Sherry had. And that's a credit to you and just the work you've done to change the direction of your family. Is that okay for an introduction? Absolutely. I, I will add to that. My third child is a member of the LGBTQ community and is also mentally ill, has been diagnosed with um, borderline personality disorder and autism, um, much of what we didn't know when they were growing up. And so they came out gay at 16 and then um, she was born female and then came out trans at 19 and then at 29 last year has gone back to they, them, she, her, and her female name. Um, and so that has been a journey that has been with me. She just turned 29. So 16, 17, what's that? 13 years when 13 it wasn't, years. it wasn't as accepted back 13 years ago. Um, now, you know, I'll tell people who will ask about my kids. They'll say, oh, cool. We're back you know, 13 years ago, it was, oh, I'm so sorry. And so just that shift has been very, it's been great, both in the church and out of the church. It's been a great transition. So 
I can yeah. tell you're very comfortable with pronouns um, and you've been walking this road for a while. Yes, yes. And as a hairstylist, I own my own salon. I'm a hairstylist and, and I really try to um, use those pronouns correctly. Sometimes the they and them are more difficult than the he and she. Agreed. <laughs> so that's the one that's hard. Well, I'll so just I wanted, let you start. I kind of want to start out talking about mental illness really quickly. Um, it needs to be normalized. Like, if you have a cold, Richard, if you have a cold, what are the different levels of that cold that exists? So you can be just a little bit of a sniffle and just go grab some cold medicine and you'll be fine. Or you can be full on sneezing, coughing, having a hard time breathing, um, and you may have bronchitis or pneumonia. But there's those things that let you know that that cold exists. And no one thinks anything of it. So you have an illness. It's not a big deal. But it goes from anywhere from simple as a sneeze to you can be, have full-blown pneumonia and be in the hospital. Mental illness is just like that. And so if someone, I'm mentally ill. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'm mentally ill. I struggle with mental illness. I struggle with depression sometimes. I struggle with um, letting go of some of those traumas of my past. I'm, I get triggers. I have, I have dream, dreams. I've been diagnosed with complex PTSD. Um, and so that is a mental illness. And so mental illness is an automatically pneumonia. Like, and that's how we look at it. We, a lot of times someone says they're mentally ill and the red flags go up and people think, oh no, they're crazy. Um, and that's not the case. There's so many levels of mental illness from just waking up in the morning and being on the wrong side of the bed. That's a level of mental illness and trying to shift that and work through that and using proper tools like um, dialectic behavior therapy and cognitive behavior therapy are tools that are given to us to work through those mental illnesses. And I think every parent should go into training for those things um, because the tools that they give are phenomenal. My son-in-law is um, a marriage and family counselor and I watch him use those tools with my grandchildren. And it makes me teary-eyed because they're given coping skills. They're given, you know, when I was a child and I would cry, shut up, or I will give you something to cry about, or they would just hit you and make you cry more. And so mental illness has to be normalized. It has to be made as common for us as what having an, a sickness is, because we all struggle with it. You struggle with it. Everybody you know struggle with it. We all have bouts of mental illness. Well said. So that was, that's the main thing on it. So I have mental illness. I have complex BTSD. I wake up in the middle of the night. Sometimes I have a couple of dreams that are very consistent. Um, probably, and I'm going to try and get through this without tears, but I'm, I have a feeling they're going to come. Um, I have uh, one dream specifically where I'm chewing gum and my mouth is filled with gum. It's like filled with gum and I choking and I can't get the gum out. I can't get the gum out of my out of my mouth and it wakes up and I'm terrified. And what that is from is from the age of probably four that I can remember, four to eight, my stepfather, we, and I, one of the things that happens with sexual abuse, oftentimes you don't 
remember the full story. So in this situation, I was at four, from four to eight. I remember him being in the shower and I could see him in the shower and then he would pull me into the shower with him. And I don't remember the events of the shower, but then I get out of the shower and I see him. And then I see him put someone else in the shower with him. And I don't remember what happened in the shower when the other person was in the shower. And then the person, I remember them coming out. So there's that block of, of what that event is. And, and my therapist and I are working on that. But we know more or less what probably happened was oral copulation, which was, you know, making a child do that. And that's where that dream stems from. Um. My mom and dad were married. My birth father and were married when I um, was born, of course, and they got a divorce when I was a year and a half. And my real father, Kenneth, uh, my mother's name was Pauline, uh, didn't believe I was his child. He thought my mom had an affair where my father was the one that was actually having affairs. Um, and he didn't want me. And my mom made that very clear my whole life. Like, I wasn't wanted by him that's why he left. He didn't want another child. And so I carried that burden with me my whole life. And, and their first child, my sister, they, he wanted, he was her rosebud and she made that very known that she was wanted and I wasn't. And so I got that from a very young age of not being wanted. And my mom came from a family of seven kids and she was extremely abused. Her father was in prison for um, murder. I, I don't know the whole story behind that. Um, and so she was left with multiple siblings that abused her. Um, and I won't share that story because that's her story and she's not here to give me permission. She's passed away. And so um, that's not a story I feel comfortable for my siblings or I to hear that, those stories because they don't know some of them and I do. And uh, so I think I know that we are attracted to what we're comfortable with. And so my mom constantly got involved with men who were abusers. That was what she found. So my, my dad was a alcoholic and he was emotionally abusive. Um, there's evidence that someone in his family was a pedophile, um, it's not evidence, it's fact. And I lived in that household off and on uh, from the time I was born till I was a year and a half. So the possibility of my therapist and I do um, uh, EMDR, which is eye rapid movement and some meditation. And in, in doing that, we've come to the conclusion that my molesting actually started at three years old or three months old. Now, wow. I don't say that that it started there because I don't have any memory of that, but the evidence and the psychology, the therapy that I've had has shown that. Um, and so that is probably where that started. I never remember feeling safe. I never remember feeling loved or wanted um, until I had my own children. It wasn't until I had my own children. And they changed all of it. And so my mom married, um, left my stepdad left when I was, or my real father left when I was a year and a half. 
And she met my stepdad right away. And my first memory of being molested was actually by his father, um, my step-grandfather, who we were in a pool and swimming, and he had me on his lap, and he was touching me in areas that he shouldn't have been touching me and in ways that he shouldn't be touching me. And I remember, like, I can see the picture if I close my eyes. I can see the picture with my eyes open of that situation still now. And, um, and it's always stayed with me. I've always remembered that situation. And then my stepdad and her got married and that's when the showering happened and he would come in our room at night and, um, would, uh, soothe us is the word that he would say or, and would touch us inappropriately. And, um, and that went on for years and, um, it, 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 at one point it came out and um, he was confronted about it. Um, and I was probably at the time 10 years old and we lived next door to a polygamous family. We had moved to Utah and we, I had gone to 11 different schools before I was in the third grade and we had moved to Utah. I was eight at the time. And I remember the family that called the Shreves, Arvin Shreves and um, he came over with and was talking with my mom and there was this, this big, huge conversation. And, and basically it came down to the fact that that was being made up, that that wasn't the truth, that that was not really what happened and that we were misunderstanding that. And so, um, that stopped for a while and, um, uh, but in the meantime, there's like there's situations with people that were also in our life. I had a cousin who um, I was laying in on a bed and I woke up one morning and he had his hands all over me. Um, I had another female cousin who, when I was six years old, um, I had to share a bed with her for a number of years. And she, on a regular basis... Um, did things. And I was, I didn't, I didn't ever feel safe to tell, tell anyone, you know, I never felt safe because the basic scenario was don't cry or I'll give you a reason to cry and not knowing what could be said and couldn't be said. So that was constantly with me. And that, that mindset of um, the sexual abuse has different ways of affecting people. So some people become very frigid. Some people become very active sexually um, and more. So how we all respond to that psychologically is very differently. Um, I was one of those kids who wanted to be loved so bad. I don't know if you've ever met someone like this, where they want to be loved so bad that it's uncomfortable. Like, it's uncomfortable to be around them. I was that kid. I was so, I wanted to be liked and wanted and loved so bad that it was uncomfortable. And so anyone that paid any kind of attention to me, um, I would just latch on to. Like, it was just like, you know, and of course, then came rejection because that was, that was too much for them. And, uh, and so my, 
the night before my 18th birthday was the last time my any relatives molested me and that was my real father or my stepfather and it was a very weird experience. I was, I was living up in the mountains. We had, my mom had a, and my mom and dad were divorced or my mom and stepdad were divorced at the time. And he had come and they were talking about getting back together, which was horrible. And I was in my bed and it was nighttime and where I was living, there was the window was open and you could see the full moon. It was this beautiful, shiny, full blue, full moon just in my room. And I remember it just going black and I felt constrained. I couldn't move. I couldn't scream. I couldn't talk. I felt heavy. I thought that I had been overcome by Satan. Like I totally, completely blacked out, totally, completely blacked out. And that was the last time that he touched me. And um, as soon as he was gone, the light came back on and I was present and I was there. And he was a broken man. I mean, and I have forgiven him. This is so important in the healing process is forgiveness. And there's two parts to it that that the second part I didn't get for many years later, the, I, I wouldn't go to therapy. So I only started doing therapy a year ago. Um, my mom was in therapy her whole life and it didn't make any difference. So I didn't really trust the process. And so I read books, I read Covey and Biscayer and, um, all these different different authors that I would read about mental health and well-being. And, and so all those things I worked on um, to become better. And I really didn't start therapy until a year. But the one thing that I learned from it is that probably one of the best books I read was Believe in Christ by Stephen E. Robinson, that we have to forgive in order to release us from that burden that it's for us, it's for us, it's for me to forgive my abuser. And the, the forgiveness doesn't mean I have to let them back in my life. It doesn't mean that I have to have my children around them. It doesn't mean that I even have to love them um, and honor them as a parent or whatever. I just have to forgive them and know that they did the best that they could do with the circumstances that they had. And then I was reading a book, an LDS book, and I can't remember which one it was, And this was the part that was difficult for me. And they said in this book that you have to forgive them because they deserve to be forgiven. The Savior says to forgive everybody and he loves them. He loves that abuser. He loves them with all of his heart. And their story is no different than yours. They were hurt. They were hurt and they were broken. And they deserve to receive that forgiveness. So you have to forgive them for you, but the forgiveness process will never be complete until you forgive them because they deserve to be forgiven. Now, what the consequences that come from that is none of your business. 
It's not up to you. That's between them and God. And any consequences that happen, you know, had we as children understood that we could have come forth and gotten help if we had gone to a teacher or we had gone to someone that we could trust, then we probably could have gotten help. And my dad would have probably been arrested and he would have gone to prison and he would have had to deal with earthly consequences. But that never happened. And so he will have to deal with the consequences in the next life. And I'm saying this from every part of my being. I hope he's forgiven and that he gets to be loved by my Savior and be with him. Wow. Because I know he just was hurt. He was hurt just like I was hurt. And the things that I did, having three children out of wedlock by three different men, I did that because I was hurt. I remember going through the repentance process numerous times. (laughs) And um, there was this, when I had my third child, which is a wonderful story, I actually gave her up for adoption. And um, that was my plan. I went through the whole process. And um, a very long story that we can talk about if anybody wants to know the story. Um, I gave her up and the family gave her back. And uh, it was an open adoption. And they just felt like they could not have it be open that she'd want me as a mother over them because they thought I was this wonderful mother. So that's a short story. But in that process, I had to go to Bishop's Court, is what they called it then. And um, uh, the, the, my bishop at the time, when I went through the process, he was wonderful. But you had that experience back then that you had to share every detail of your sin. And that was so traumatic for me to sit there and go into details about my sexual activity. It was like being abused again. Having four men sitting in front of four men and telling them intimate details of my sexual life. And that was hard. That was so difficult. And afterwards, he said, okay, we are disfellowshipping you, but it will just be for a short time. And we want you to go to the young adult ward and take your children to the young adult ward and be a part of there. And we want you to meet with your bishop every single month. Well, I got into a ward where the bishop was old school. And so I would meet with him every month and he would ask me the basic same question. If you could do it all again, would you change anything? And my answer was, I couldn't. I couldn't change it. I wouldn't be able to change it. And he couldn't understand that. And he said, sister, he said, you have to own this. You have to take accountability for this. And I said, isn't that why I'm here? Haven't I done that? And he's like, I just don't, I don't see that. And he said, how could you make that choice over and over again? And I said, okay, I'm going to try and explain something to you. I said, I am, when I am in that act of having sex outside of marriage and being promiscuous with the many, many people that I was with, how that events happens is I, st- I am standing there outside of my body and I'm seeing this happen and I'm watching this happen 
And I'm screaming at myself saying, stop, don't do this. What are you doing? And I have no control over my body. That is how that happens. Every single time, that is how that happens. And he would shake his head and he says, you'll never be fully forgiven until you own this. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like, why doesn't he get this? Like, why doesn't he understand this? And so when I got into therapy last year and they start talking about disassociation and what disassociation is, I had never heard of it. I had experienced it my whole life. And I saw, and they gave, they gave this list of all the traits of someone with complex PTSD. And I hit every single one of them except for alcoholism and drug abuse. I hit them all. And, and so then when they started talking about disassociation and depersonalization and how we, what disassociation is a psychological term where we remove ourselves from our body and we watch ourselves act out. Um, and it's like we have separated from our bodies. I sobbed when that was explained to me. And I was like, that is what I've been trying to tell people. Like I've been trying to explain this to people and it is a common um, symptom, just like, if I sneeze, that's a symptom for allergies or cold. You know, you're going to be triggered that disassociation is a common symptom for someone with complex PTSD or PTSD. They're common. So all these behaviors that I had, as I sat there and watched that list and read that list, they were all symptoms. They were symptoms of the sexual abuse, the physical abuse, the emotional abuse, all the years of abuse that I experienced. I am now seeing worse symptoms and the shame and the guilt that was released from me last year when I sat in those therapy sessions. And as I continue to sit in those therapy sessions is amazing because I have owned, I owned every situation. It was my fault. I think even my letter, I still struggle with that. I still, there's a part of me that thinks, oh my gosh, this must've been my fault. I must've, you know, the fact that, you know, my parents beat me and my grandparents beat me and, and I get beaten up by kids and, and I didn't have friends. There must've been something wrong with me. I must've done something to deserve that. And so as I learned that those are symptoms of someone who has struggled with mental, physical, and emotional abuse, it freed me. It absolutely freed me. And the books that I read have helped free me step by step by step. And the Lord has definitely been on the journey with me. You know, there were times where, you know, my patriarchal blessing says, at the present time, the churches will thought of and the people of church are respected. The time will come in your life where you will be ridiculed and you will be reviled. And I thought that would be from people outside of the church, but it has been more from people inside of the church that I have received that ridicule and that revile. And on the flip note, I have received love and support as well. And 
I could not have made it through three children out of wedlock because I didn't get help from my family. I didn't get, I tried not to be on welfare. I was on welfare for um, up until I went to beauty school. And so I entered beauty school when my youngest was two and I went to beauty school and I've been able to support myself without child support uh-huh. and my children through all of that. And so there have been I couldn't have done that without the members who loved me and supported me as they helped pick up my children, as they helped take care of my children on Saturdays when I had to work or be in school. And so there's been both. There's been both those that have abused me and ridiculed me. And somehow through it all, I always felt the Savior's love. There's never been a time that I've not felt the Savior's love, ever. At the end of my patriarchal blessing, it says... Young lady, you will inherit the celestial kingdom. You will reserve, receive all the blessings that God has has in store for his children. You will move forward from this time forth. And I had um, that bishop who was so wonderful um, and just felt me say, I've never read anyone's blessing that says you will. It all says, if you do this, if you are faithful, if you, and so that, that, those words in my patriarchal blessing have given me the faith to continue to hold on, especially now when so many people are leaving the church and so many people are bothered by some of the history of the church. I have been able to hold on because of the experiences that the Savior has given to me and me feeling his love and knowing that he's been there through the people that he's put in my life and the experiences he's put in my life. So the sexual abuse um, continued though after um, that. I Probably one of the most disheartening was the one after I got off my mission. Um, there was an elder that I adored. Like I adored him. And... Um, and I struggled on my mission. I did really well. I learned on my mission that I was a good teacher, but I struggled with human relationships. My companionships were difficult, and I was the problem. I don't know if you know that Taylor Swift song that's out now. It's me. It's me. I'm the problem. I was the one. I struggled um, being a companion. Um, I made out with an elder on my mission. Um, you know, I just, I was broken. I was broken and I just wanted to be loved. And, and so um, this mission, you know, I always had all those dreams. I was going to come home and get married and have the perfect family. And, and a mission was very eye-opening because members are very transparent to missionaries. And so I always lived in this fantasy that it was just my family that was broken. And so I got into my mission and I saw, nope, it's not just my family. <laughs> and so this one elder we became really good friends and we got home and he asked me on a date and I was just thrilled I was just like oh my gosh you know and so we went on this date and at the end of the date we went to a park and we were sitting down looking at the skies and um he kissed me and started kissing me and one thing led to another and he got really handsy like really really handsy and I couldn't stop him like I wanted to stop him but I couldn't stop it. And it didn't go anywhere further than hands, but I was so angry and so hurt. 
and he had a very common name. And so every time I hear that name, I just, it makes me so sad. And that I didn't get up and walk away and just tell him, how dare you? And instead he got to walk away and he never called me again. He never, you know, contacted me again. So I felt so hurt. And, um, so that was, that was really, really difficult. And so that's the short story of my, my sexual abuse. Um, the hardest part of, of my story probably has been my relationship with my mother as a mom of children, man, I can't, she knew what was going on. You know, she knew what was going on and she did not, she did not step in and, and help us. And, um, and she was, uh, she was equally as abusive, um, especially with me and my sisters would back me on this, whatever it was about her and my relationship, whether I triggered something in her, but she was very violent with me um, from a very young age and very neglectful. And um, she made it clear that I was not loved, that I was not wanted. And then she would come in and she would say, you know, I love you, right? And I'd be like, yeah, I know. And I did. I knew she loved me, but she, she was dealing with this mental illness and somehow as a child I knew but it it hurt the things that she did was just so hurtful and um she's tried to kill me three times in my life um she used to back me in a corner and just I literally would be in a corner and she'd be punching me and slapping me and yelling at me and um just so physically violent she would make us go out and get green switches off the tree. And if they weren't green enough, she'd go pick it herself. And then it would be either getting spanked on a bare butt or with our clothes on, um, depending on, and, and we would bleed, like we would bleed and, and we'd get hit with belts. And if we moved, we'd get hit with belts all over our body. Um, and so, and I had the tendency to be the one to get it the worst. And I remember at eight years old, I, my sister had done something, my brother had done something, and I was like the third one to do something. And I don't even remember what I did, but she went in and she just, I mean, I can remember her just all of her strength hitting me with the belt, hitting me with the belt. And I had welts all over my back and my bottom. And a couple hours went by and I just stayed in my room and just cried. And and then I finally got the courage. I'm like, why me? They did worse things than me. Why me? I remember this event so, so clearly. And I got the courage to ask her. And I, why am I always the one that gets spanked and spanked so hard? And she's like, because you're the easiest one to do it to. And she was so flippant about it. Like, so, because you're the easiest one to do it to. And turned around and walked out. And I was like, I have no idea what that meant. Like, what did that mean? I, I don't know. And so that was a continual thing with her. Um, the, the three times that she attempted to kill me was actually after having children. Um, uh, one was in the presence of both of my children, my two oldest, and we had to escape out a window. And she came after us with a knife as she wanted 
my sister and I to rent a house from her. And I said, no, we're not, we're not going to rent. We're happy where you are. And she flipped out from that. And, um, you could, she using every cuss word in the world and you could see the knife coming through the door. Like it literally, she was using so much of her strength. And my younger sister was in the room with me and we had locked the door and you could see the knife. It would pierce the door. I mean, she was, you know, and she's screaming, I'm going to effing kill you. I'm going to effing kill you. Um, and so we got out the window and she didn't let me have any of my stuff. My purse was there. My money was there. My kids' prescriptions were there. Um, Rory, my uh, middle child, was just born. He was probably eight weeks old. Um, so all of his diapers and everything were there. And she wouldn't let my sister bring anything to me. And so we had to live at a neighbor's house for five days um, until I could sneak in and get my stuff because she wouldn't let that. And so one day I was able to sneak in and she was sleeping and I got my stuff out. And just as I was going for the door to leave on the last trip to get things out, I felt this big, huge thing on the back of my head hit me with like, and I fell, like I was just like down and I almost passed out, but I didn't. And like blood was coming from the back of my head. And, um, and I just remember every part of me going, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And whatever strength I got in me, I was able to get into me and fight back and get away. And I should have had her arrested. The police came and Neighbors called the police and, and I didn't, I never had her arrested. I should have had her arrested. And so there's lots of stories like that. I remember I was doing really well in sixth grade and we were in Utah. We were in Ogden, Utah. Um, I was, Mr. Deegan was the teacher and I was, I'd been chosen. I had made a poster and entered it in the, um, a contest and I had won the state level and was, or the city level and was going to the state level. And I was part of a dance and I got the, what everybody's dance that everybody wanted to do. I got to do, um, for our, the dance festival that the school had done at Lincoln elementary in Lincoln and, and Ogden, Utah. And we were at practice for this dance and my mom came in and she's like, go get your stuff. We're going to, we're going to go to Southern California um, and visit your Nana. And I was like, Oh, and I turned around and I said, we'll be back in time, right. For everything. And she's like, just go get your stuff. And she goes, yes, just go get your stuff. And I remember seeing Mr. Deacon's face and his face was just, he was angry. He was so mad. And so we get to, you know, we get, and we leave and we go to, to California to, and we didn't, we moved. They, we went and I, two weeks goes by and I was like, are we not going back? The dance festival's next week and the contest is next week. She goes, no, we're not. We've moved here. We just didn't want to deal with your crying and your drama. So we didn't tell you. And I literally did not speak for two, two months. I did not speak, would not have a conversation with them. I was in sixth grade at the time, would not, they sent me to an elementary school and I didn't talk there um, and finally she called Mr. Deegan and said, will you talk if I let you talk to Mr. Deegan? And I said, yeah. And I called him and he, and he just said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that your parents are idiots. And he goes, I shouldn't say this, but your parents are idiots. And that wasn't right for them to do. 
And that carried in me a belief that what was important to me never mattered. What I needed never mattered. And as a mom, I took that maybe went a little overboard and made sure that my children always had input on what I did as a mother. My son and I were just having a discussion the other night and he really struggled with staying at a certain high school. And I said, okay, well, let's change. And he was, and he said to me the other night, he said, mom, you shouldn't have, you should have said, no, son, you're staying here and you're going to stick this out. And I should have in retrospect, but I wasn't given the opportunity to ever share what was, what I wanted. I was told, I was told what I was supposed to do. My mom also um, was a serial um, person who tried to commit suicide. Um, The stories I could tell are crazy um, of how many times and she was in and out of mental institutions. And when she was in the mental institutions, we were left with my stepdad um, uh, and that was when things would get worse with him. And, but the two times that stand out the most of her suicide attempts, um, one was when I was six years old we were at my Nana's house that my Nana was actually my um, stepdad's mother. And, um, I had gone in to her room to ask her something. I don't remember what I was going to ask her, but I knew she was asleep and I wasn't supposed to be in there because she was sleeping. And I walked in and her bed is covered with throw up and blood everywhere. And there's throw up and blood everywhere. And she's, I, you know, I'm thinking she's dead and I'm screaming. And my stepdad comes in and he sees it and he's like, get out of here, go outside. And then the ambulance came and they came to take her away and all this kind of stuff. Now, as an adult, if looking back on that situation now, where were the adults in stopping and saying, Sherry, are you okay? Let's get this little girl to therapy. This is traumatic. This is something she just walked in on her mother who attempted to kill herself and there's blood everywhere. There was never a conversation. There was never an explanation. There was never an opportunity for me to feel the pain from that, to come to a place of understanding that. It was, get outside. I was yelled at. And as a child, we always felt like it was our fault. Everything was always our fault, my fault. That's how I felt. I felt like, is he mad at me because she did that because of me? Like it was, it was horrible. And, um, and we were never given the opportunity to heal. I, I, I often think about my mom was in therapy all these years. Like she was in and out of therapy. How come no one in the professional field was like, huh, she's got four children at home. Maybe we should check in there. You know, maybe we should check into this situation. Um, and they didn't, which always kind of surprises me. Um, this, the second suicide, I mean, there were suicides throughout her whole life. I remember one time uh, her bishop had an impression that he should find her. And he called me and said, what bars does she hang out? 
And, and he said he felt, he felt like he had to go to the bars. And I said, well, I, so I gave him a list of all the bars. And he gets to this one bar and he sees her purse. And he goes to the purse at the table and there's a suicide note there. And he sits down and he's just so broken. And then she walks out of the bathroom. And um, he's like, Pauline. And so he gets her and he brings her home. And she's mad that he's you know, intervened. And, you know, my sister was actually on her mission at the time. Um, my older sister. And, uh, so he brought her home and I'm there and I'm trying to comfort her. And I'm like, mom, are you okay? Like, what can we do? And she looks at me and she spits in my face with this huge ball of grossness right in my face and says, I don't want you. I don't want you here and I don't want you. I want your sister. I'm like, I was shocked. I was just like, wow. And she was put in a mental institution on 72 hours hold after that. The bishop was just like, okay, we're calling. (laughs) He was there and he saw it and he was just like, wow. But the one that stood out the most to me, and she actually, this event on the suicide attempt um, was her last one um, until many years later, um, when one of my sisters disappeared, which is a whole other story that I won't get into. Um, and uh, she had gone up to these mountains in Forest Hill, and she was like, I'm done. I, I'm going to do this the right way. There's no way I'm going to escape from this. And she found this cliff, and she was going to drive off this cliff um, and in her car. She didn't have her seatbelts on. She's like, I'm, this, is, this is it. This is, I'm done. And so she flies off this cliff and there's literally these two trees that are the exact width of her car and the trees catch her, literally catch her car and the car comes down. She breaks the branches as they go down and she's not hurt. She's not thrown from the vehicle. She's not anything. These great big, huge pine trees just catched her and cushioned the whole thing. And so she goes down and she's mad as heck. I mean, like she's furious. She gets out of the car. She has to climb up this hill and get up this hill. She gets all scratched from climbing up the hill. She has to flag down someone to come get her and take her. And so then she calls my sister and she comes home. We had her put in the 72 hour lockdown again. She gets a ticket for uh, destroying the forest. She gets put in a she has to pay to have the car logged out. And she's decided that maybe, just maybe, God wasn't going to let her kill herself. And so her attempted suicide stopped for a long time then. She really got into AA and to therapy. And, and after that, it really had done some good. She was still violent and vicious and stuff like that but the suicides attempt stopped um until she turned 71 and at 71 she ended up taking her life um and succeeded and uh um, she you know she wanted to go she was gone and um and so i'm very when people say they're going to commit suicide i have to check myself because my first instinct is to say, here, here's a knife, do it. Like I'm almost cold about it um, because 
I dealt with it my whole life, like constantly over and over. And it was used as a tool of manipulation um, with us kids. Like it was thrown in, in our faces. And so anyway, so my children out of wedlock. So I went on my mission. Um, I had a great mission. Um, I learned a lot. I learned, I struggled, but I learned. Um, and I was a really good teacher and my patriarchal blessing. I, I got my patriarchal blessing when I was 16 and it was the first time I'd ever fasted and prayed. And, um, it was the first sentence in it is young, young lady, you must have courage because you will face some very severe situations during your life and you must be ready and willing to, you must be ready. Oh, I'm confusing two paragraphs. It basically just says you will face some very severe situations. You must have courage in these situations. Um, and that's how it begins. And the whole patriarchal blessing is about my trials and my struggles. Um, uh, that same bishop who had talked about that, he says, I've never seen a blessing that is, he said, negative. I don't, he goes like, I don't like that word negative, but he said, that's negative. That's dwelling on the struggles and the trials and the hardships. There's not a lot of positive things in there. And he says, and it's, it's very long. It's like two very, two and a half, very long pages. Um, and it's that patriarchal blessing that kept me, but it said that I would serve a mission. You will serve as a full-time missionary. And so I went on a mission and I didn't get set apart till I was in the MPC. We were allowed to do that back then in the eighties. And the gentleman that set me apart, um, when he was setting me apart in the blessing, he said, the mission in which you're, and I didn't tell him that it mentioned that I had a uh, that I was going to get called on mission in my blessing. The, min- the mission that your blessings, your patriarchal blessing speaks of at this time is not the, the mission that you're serving is not the mission that your patriarchal blessing is speaking of. But the Lord is proud that you are willing to go and you will go on that mission at a different time that your blessing speaks of. And my companion and I were like, did your, did your blessing say you'll go on a mission? I said, yeah. It does. And he, she's like, that's really rare for a girl. And I said, I know. And, and so he didn't know that. And that's what that said. And so um, I took that mission as being, and I'm sure you've heard this, they say that a mission is more for the missionary than it is for those that he's going out to convert. Or, and that was definitely my case. That's when I was converted to the church. Um, before that, it was my safety net. It's where I could find refuge, you know, going and being away from my family and hearing the spirit and going to church and all those different things. And so it definitely was that place of refuge for me. And on my mission, it's when I um, really found um, the peace that I needed. And so when I got home from my mission about a year and a half later, my mission president and his wife got a divorce. And this for me was the switch. This for me is what, it, it broke something in me. And I remember thinking, if President Rasmussen can't make it work, there's no way I can. 
There's no way I can. I was so broken and I didn't connect with people. I wasn't able to connect with people. Um, I had worked as a, a nanny um, and the little girl was a model and her agent approached me and said, I want you to model for me. And I was blown away. I was like, me? Like, I'm not beautiful. And she's like, oh my gosh, you are beautiful. And so I started doing modeling and being introduced into that crowd of people. And then she entered me and, and I've always been a bigger girl. I've never been skinny. I was 160 pounds when I graduated from high school at 5'8". And I had, was now at this point around 180. And so she entered me in the Miss Big Beautiful America pageant. And I took Miss Utah and then went to the national pageant in Las Vegas, took um, second runner up and took top talent with the motivational speech. And this was the first time in my life that I felt beautiful. I was in magazine. I was at a, a centerfold in a magazine and I never felt beautiful before I felt ugly. So now I had a tool to, to get people to love me. And it was my beauty. And I locked into that. And then men started coming towards me. And that is when I no longer had the power to turn away the sex. And that's when I got into those relationships. And I never had sex with anybody that I wanted to have a relationship with. It was only with men that I didn't that I didn't want to marry or I didn't want to have a relationship with. And it was never planned. It just happened. And I just never stopped it. And so my first child um, was my oldest daughter. She's a beautiful redhead. And she was the first time I ever felt true human connection. Like I loved this child. With all my heart. And she loved me back. And it was pure and it was clean and it was real and it was honest and it was wonderful. And then, and her dad was someone I just one night stand with. Like, um, it was, we had the one night and I probably got pregnant that first night and we knew each other after that, but we really, it was a really weird situation and he's still in the picture and we have a really good relationship and then my son um, was the first male in my life that it was a pure male relationship. So the first male man that I've ever grown to love. And to this day, he's five, he's six, five and big and burly and gives the best hugs. And I love him with all my heart and we have the best relationship and he's amazing. And to have that pure love between him and myself and know that it was real. And then my youngest is the one who's LGBTQ. And she was the first time that I felt God's love, that I felt like he really loved me with the miracle of giving her up for adoption and then the miracle of getting her back. And that pain that I felt of letting her go, there's nothing like it. When you give a child up for adoption, I can understand why people abort. It's so much easier when you give that child away, it's something is taken from you. And each of those children helped me get better because I wouldn't, up to that point, if I'm a child, I didn't, I wasn't well. 
and they, I didn't want to be the kind of parent that my parents were. I wanted to be a good mom. And that's when I started reading and that's when I started searching and I wanted to be better. And each one of them helped bring me closer to that place of being better and better. And then the Lord has just been in that process the whole time. Now here I am at 61 and I still struggle with things. I don't struggle with the sins, but I struggle with sadness sometimes. Like I'm smart. I could have been a doctor or a lawyer um, and made a huge difference in the world had I had parents who directed me a certain way, but they couldn't even keep us in school. I mean, my mom would say, don't go to school, stay home and watch your siblings or stay home and do laundry. Or, you know, I don't even know how I graduated from high school because it just really didn't come. And so, but my kids gave me a purpose and the journey, I can't see it being any other way than it was. And I'm proud of them and I'm proud of my story and I'm proud that I've overcome it with the Lord's help. Sherry, you're brave. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking of all our listeners that have been walking similar roads and felt so alone. And um, just some comments, listeners. I think I want to reach my arms through the Zoom lens and just give Sherry a big hug for being alive, being a survivor, um, finding hope and healing, understanding mental illness, complex PTSD, connecting so many dots that were unconnectable as a child. And these are some of the notes I wrote down, listeners. I've got about six, five or six, and then I want to give it back to Sherry for some final comments. I didn't sense any shame, listeners, in Sherry as she told her story. Um, I didn't see her look away from the Zoom camera or feel embarrassed. And I think that's a great credit to you that you went through all these difficult experiences that you felt shame about at some point in your life and you don't now. And that's, a credit, that's a credit to you the therapist, the atonement, but it's a credible credit to you and your Thank survivor. You. Speaking of survivors, I at the beginning of the show, I kind of said your survivor, once you're done with sexual assault and you've moved on and your perpetrators left, but you're a survivor if you're just alive for another day. So some of you may be listening and are currently in um, a situation where you're being sexually assaulted and have no ability to sort of exit that situation just like you didn't. And um, you have to look at yourself as a survivor right now, that you're just alive and that you're you're going to be okay at some point. You're going to be free from this relationship. And that's this situation. It's not a relationship. <laughs> it's yeah. um, And Sherry's story can perhaps give you hope. Um, I'm going to just mention a little bit from, I wrote a second book called Listen, Learn, and Love, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture Listener. And one of the chapters is chapter five, hope-filled repentance. And you're the best example of what I shared in the book that I've ever heard. Uh, I talked about, and this is with YSAs, the iceberg concept, that sometimes we see sin at the top of the iceberg is the same thing, like being sexually active before marriage. But I learned, and it took me a while to get here, and I had to have a lot of experiences working with people through the process of repentance to get to this principle that what you've got to do is get to the bottom of the iceberg because Absolutely. the sin at the top of the iceberg may be the same being sexually active. That's still against church teachings. Sherry didn't say it's not, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but the bottom of the iceberg, and I'll read this. Um, one example, the bottom of the iceberg is in the inherent need to be loved, wanted to desire 
a deficit that some women attempted to meet with sexual activity. Some had experienced this gap in their entire lives, never feeling valued or loved, sometimes compounded with abuse and trauma. All these factors could lead to a wonderful sister more vulnerable to sexual activity because of her emotional needs for love and validation. Often the relationship ended when the male partner made it clear he was not looking for a long-term relationship, leaving her more, even more emotionally injured, compounded by the shame of being sexually active. And that's not exactly your situation, but I just felt, listeners, that if I was sat with the Spirit in some of these situations, I came to the conclusion that the repentance process was very different um, for someone like Sherry. And if I gave Sherry the same sort of um, like a penal system where the sin's the same, so give everybody the same sentence, then I was just adding to her um, emotional abuse and her trauma and the PTSD. But if I sat with the Spirit and recognized what was going in here, I could give her a customized repentance plan that would be unique to her full story in the totality, even though I'm not a therapist. So, you know, I I just reinforced what I put in that book, but you're the best example I've ever heard of somebody. And um, the next thing, and so you could read that whole chapter if you want to. In fact, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. You can just download it for free if you want to. Um, I love um, what you said about your kids and how they help make you whole when you talked about your daughter and your son and they use the word honest and pure love. And I've just, it helps me realize just that was never possible for you. And it wasn't your fault. Mm-mm. You were never in a situation until but you became a mom to experience what you should have felt from the very beginning of your life. Yeah. And for you to use those words that I would just use my whole life, honest, pure love, whole, complete, and for that not to come to you until you could give that to your own children, how pure and beautiful that was. It just kind of opened my eyes even further to the unique and difficult road you've walked. Um, listeners, we have didn't really, um, we you joined the church along the way, um, and some would wonder if you went to your LDS bishop or if anybody else did, but I don't think you did. I don't think there's a, some may wonder if this is a example of, because some of those stories in the news where an abuser went to the bishop and the bishop kind of excused them and it sort of further victimized somebody like you. I don't think that's part of the story here. No, it's not. It's not. And so I don't want anybody to weaponize your podcast and say, yeah, this is another example of um, a bishop that sort of protected a male and, you know, the abuser and didn't, and we I went think, to our polygamous neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> so don't so use the to. story that way. Um, um, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. There were Thank adult males that in your life that were not helpful abusing you, but there isn't a, a church angle here where the church let you down. Um, complex PTSD is, you've really helped me understand that better. Um, so those are some of my thoughts. Listeners will also put in the show notes, Elder Kieran's talk, Healing in My Wings which is the best, and I don't awesome. know I don't know how you feel about that, but that's the best talk I've ever heard because it just takes total responsibility from the survivor. And sometimes oh. we've said things that make the survivor feel it's their fault. And you've already thought it's your fault because everybody's told you it's your fault. Oh. And now you realize it's not. But we need to be really careful not to say anything um, to cause somebody like Sherry to think this is all her fault. It's not. <laughs> 
And I think he does the very best talk ever given in the church to help us understand that. Um, and I'm just, so those are the two things we'll put in the show notes. Um, but I'll be, and then I want to turn it back to you, but this is probably a four hour podcast listeners that were kind of <laughs> smacking into an hour. Um, but I think my prayer is that the thing Sherry um, has shared will help you. Sherry is in a remarkable place. She is bright. She is articulate. She is at peace. She's full of love and forgiveness. And I think you're not going to like this language, but you are a hero to me. And I think to your kids. And then you being having the courage to share this the podcast, there are people out there that you're a hero to them because you've given them a way forward to find what you've found. And that's through therapy. And you're honest about your mental illness. That's what I, one of the other things I admire about you. No shame in talking about that. There was no embarrassment about talking about that. But through the atonement, through uh, mental health, and through just your lifelong journey of staying connected to the church, you have gotten yourself in a really good place. And I just, I, I think forever your posterity's changed because of you, Sherry. Sure, there'll be difficult family situations, um, but what you've done for your children that wasn't done for you, maybe that was part of your life mission is forever change the trajectory of your, the rest of your posterity because of who you are and the courage you've had to get in the space you have and share it and create a feeling of love and support. Um, so thank you for who you are. And I know you're not perfect and I'm not perfect. And <laughs> but I do, I, I'm tenderhearted when you say, I recognize that mortality has changed for me. And I think listeners that your eternal possibilities haven't changed as far as an eternal family and a eternal companion, but mortality has changed. And one of those you recognize is I think you recognize you have incredible talents um, that have never been fully allowed to be explored. Um, you were in the middle of that program and then you moved. What if you had a supportive family that had nurtured that talent, but sort of other people buried your talents on the hill so you could never. And so I grieve with you that that was never possible. And I'm, I think you're honest when you say I'm a little sad about Mm -hmm. that, even though I'm happy. And I, my younger self would have given you a platitude and said, well, it's all, it's all worked out. Okay. And my older self would say, no, it hasn't worked out. Okay. Some of your dreams are like Elder Cook's talk when he talks about the Titanic sinking. He says, songs unsung. And that's always yeah. talked, stuck with me when he talked about young people, maybe old people dying in the Titanic. Um, so part of you died in the Titanic of your early life and figuratively. You're alive physically, but, and that's true of all of us. Not as, you know, I've had a privileged life, listeners, where none of that's really come in my life, but for many people, through no fault of their own, it has come into life. But then I go to our restored doctrine and your eternal possibilities haven't changed because of what's happened in mortality. And the promise- And my patriarchal voice makes that clear. And your hopes and your dreams are, and and your patriarchal blessing, and you rely on that. Um, So anyway, those are some of my thoughts, listeners. And I want to turn it back to Sherry Cassell- C-A-S-S-E-L-L. I mispronounced your podcast name before we went live. But share anything else you'd like to share with our listeners. I think the last thing would be the one thing I've learned about sin um, 
And it's given me grace for other people like my dad's. And no one wants to be sinful. No one wants to be bad. And I think as leaders of the church, one of the things that they need to understand and members of the church need to understand is that iceberg that you talked about. What's underneath the sin? What's causing it? It's a symptom. Sin is a symptom of something deeper. It is when when you sneeze, that's a symptom for me to say, ooh, you might have COVID, stay away, you know, or to protect yourself. And when people and these people are coming to you as a bishop or uh, and confessing their sins, they're sharing their symptoms of something greater. And that's where our compassion lies. That's where our empathy lies. That's where maybe we can sit down with them and listen to them, to their story. Because whatever stays hidden in the dark festers and it's like mold. It grows and it gets bigger and it gets more poisonous and more infectious. And and we know the dangers of mold and how it can actually kill you. And so when these things are hidden in the dark, um, they do more harm. So be a, a willing listener and and see the symptoms and just love on people. Steve Young's got it right in his book, The Path to Love. If I could, if I could do any plug right now, I would say if you're out there, get that book, The Path of Love. Um, that's the answer to a lot of what's going on in the gospel and in the church and in the world today. And, and just, let's just love on each other. Just love on each other unconditionally. Non-transition. Why can't I say the word? I've said it many times. Transactional love. You said it. Uh, This is just a great podcast. Um, We'll also link to Steve Young's book in the show notes. Um, Terrific book. Um, that Sherry's just referenced, and you cross path with him, path with him, with him, and his terrific book. Thank you, Sherry, for a wonderful life, and you have a wonderful life ahead of you. At sixty-one, you're not doing this podcast at eighty-one. Um, yeah. You've done a lot of hard work, especially it sounds like with your recent therapist. And it's never too late, listeners, to go to therapy. Um, it sounds oh, like absolutely. a fair amount of that came in the last couple of years, but you're in a great spot. You're not at the finish line, and I'm not at the finish line, but you are in a place where you are in a great position to now. I read this quote a lot, listeners, and here I am saying I wouldn't talk much, and you're ready to sign off, but here I am talking still. Um, we love it. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart, and a heart is too narrow of a term for you, a heart and a soul. And a very being wounded about the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of a desert by someone who'd never been there. So, you know, brutal, multiple brutal, just hellish deserts. And yeah. you're the wounded healer for what you've done on this podcast and what you're doing in your family and what you're doing with friends that know they could just know I can open up to Sherry Cassell about the realities of my life and she'll just get it. She may not know exactly my situation, but she has principles to go there and give me hope. And so those of you that are in a tough spot, you're the wounded healers and you're going to be in a better spot. And if you're thinking of suicide, we've talked a lot about that. Live another day. Your older self will be glad your younger self lived and you can be the wounded healer to help others. So anyway, this is Richard Osler and Sherry Cassell signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>